I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, John chapter 2. And uh, once you get turned over to John chapter 2, uh, what, I, what I want to do today is prepare you to uh, partake in the Lord's table together. And uh, we're going to be using this text as a guide or uh, give us some guiding thoughts as we approach the Lord's table together. Uh, before we look at the text of Scripture, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to strengthen us. Father, if we're not careful, we can approach Sunday worship in a ritualistic or traditional way. We can come and do our things, sing our songs, and not really take moments to reflect upon our Savior. Lord, I pray that today as we study your word and we consider how Jesus approached worship in the temple, that you would teach us, Lord, what is appropriate for us as a response to you. We thank you for this. Pray that you would guide my words, guide our thoughts and our meditations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said at the beginning of our service, today's a special day. We get to partake in the Lord's uh, Supper together today. Uh, the Lord's Table is one of the highest acts of Christian worship. And I think that because it uh, gives us a symbolic reminder of the sufficient uh, shed blood of Jesus Christ that was able to cover every one of our sins. And so as we partake, partake in this together today, it'll be a special moment for us. As uh, I thought of preparing us for this, uh, I thought, you know, I, th I thought it'd be good for us to go to a text where Christ speaks about worship. So that's why we're going to look at John 2. There's a growing disparity today among evangelical churches about what genuine worship should look like or sound like. There's, of course, the old debate that goes back hundreds of years about whether churches should just use things prescribed by the New Testament or whether New Testament churches have freedom of creativity to use things that aren't necessarily condemned by the Bible. That's the old debate. However, the evangelical church, churches today are engaging in worship wars in new ways, um, considering new things about what constitutes genuine worship. Some churches uh, mess with the lights in the auditorium at different times throughout the service to create a certain experience. So they will turn the lights up at certain points in the service or dim the lights to, to create a certain environment for worship experiences. Uh, in the last several years, actually a, a few years ago, there was actually a, a movement uh, called the Emerging Church, which put emphasis on engaging all of the senses in a worship experience. And so uh, to enhance your worship experience, they tried to engage your sense of smell. The way they would do this would be by burning incense. So when you got together to worship, you, you smelled worship, and they would create 
visual, powerful visual demonstrations to engage your eyes, who try to engage your sense of taste, believe it or not, and your sense of touch uh, as well. Yet as we prepare for worship today, the Lord's table, I want to suggest a different emphasis. If worship is defined as a spirit of praise and adoration to God, my question is, why not ask God what he thinks is appropriate for worship? Since worship means reverence paid to a divine being, why not ask the divine being what he thinks about genuine or true worship? That's why I want to go to a text today where Jesus' expectations regarding worship are made known. We're going to look at verses 13 through 22 very briefly this morning, where John tells the story of Jesus' powerful action in the temple on Passover. Here, John tells this story, and there are two acts to it. I want to look at the first act with you, verses 13 through 17, is the cleansing of the temple. Look in your Bible at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, quote, zeal for your house will consume me. There are two acts here. This first one I call the cleansing of the temple. The first part of this story, John describes uh, the setting. See the setting uh, here in verses 13 and 14. And what we find out is that this story unfolds during one of the most important moments of the Jewish calendar in Jerusalem. This was the Jewish Passover. The Passover was one of three great festivals in the Jewish calendar year, and at Passover, all Jewish adults were required to come back to Jerusalem and engage in this festival festival celebration. Now, Hebrew people would come from all over the known world at this time back to Jerusalem to engage in the temple at Passover because they had been dispersed all over the world. Now, the Passover feast itself commemorated something special for the children of Israel. If you remember your Old Testament history, you go back to like Exodus, for instance, you could read about the fact that the Passover celebration was a reminder of the day that God delivered the Israelite people from bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. But for the Jewish people, the Passover was not only a looking back to those moments, it was also looking forward to the moment when Jesus, or I'm sorry, not Jesus Christ, but when the Messiah would come and would ultimately deliver the people from the consequences of their sin. Okay, so Passover for them meant looking back to deliverance and looking forward to a future Messiah. That's why Christians today do not celebrate the Passover. The reason we don't celebrate the Passover today is because Jesus Christ has already come 
and delivered us from the consequences of our sins. He was our Passover lamb that was shed for us. And now we stand uh, complete in him. And so this setting is, is very interesting. The story place, takes place in Jerusalem. But not only Jerusalem, you notice as well, the story takes place in the temple. Verse 14, first three words, in the temple. Now the temple was a place designed to be designated to the worship of God. It was a special place of sanctity for worshiping Yahweh. But I think it's important for us to take a moment here and to stop and reflect upon the structure of the temple and how it was set up, if we're going to understand the setting to the story. Uh, so I, I ask you to use your imaginations for a moment. I'd ask you to close your eyes and, you know, and do that, but I'm afraid you'd never open them up again. Uh, so just imagine the temple with me for a moment. It all starts near the center of the temple building with the inner sanctum, the inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, of course, was a place where God's special abiding presence remained during the, the Old Testament period. Is a place uh, where only at certain times of the year the high priest could enter. Uh, all other people were forbidden from going into the Holy of Holies, and so the temple kind of revolves around that inner chamber, the Holy of Holies. Outside of the Holy of Holies, there were four courts whereby people could go and worship God. So you'd leave the Holy of Holies, and you'd go down 12 steps into the first of the four courts, and it was called the Court of the Priests. And uh, you can imagine who was allowed to go into the court of the priests. Help me here. Who do you think was allowed to go into the, pre the court of the priests? The priests. Yes, you got it. Sharp crowd. Okay. So the priests would go in there and offer sacrifices to God. Outside of the court of the priests, you'd go into the next court, and the next court was called the court of the Israelites. And who do you think was allowed to go into the court of the Israelites? Sort of. Trick question. I set you up for that one. The court of the Israelites was a place where uh, Hebrew men could go and worship Jesus Christ. This is as close as a Hebrew man could get to the presence of God in the Old Testament, to the Holy of Holies, but this is a place where they could go and worship God. Outside of the court of the Israelites, you would take 15 steps down in a semicircle pattern into a 60-yard by 60-yard court called the Court of the Women. Okay, and again... I won't keep asking because you missed the last one. Uh, who was allowed to worship in the court of the women? Jewish women. This was as close as they could get to the abiding presence of God in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies. Once you went outside of the court of the women, you would move uh, outside into the fourth and final court, the court of the Gentiles. This location is the closest place a Gentile could get to the presence of God for worship in the Old Covenant time. In the court of the Gentiles, though, were penned whole flocks of sheep and oxen. The stench and the filth of the court of the Gentiles was notorious. There were wicker cages that would hold loud and annoying doves. There were money changers who sold animals, people selling animals. There would be people there bargaining and exchanging money. The court of the Gentiles became quite a noisy bazaar. Okay, so that's the setting. Verses 15 and 16, you get the response of Jesus. So as you look at verses 15 and 16, what John does is he, he tells the story of Jesus' response by using four verbs, right? Jesus is four things, 
primarily. Okay, the first three verbs are actions. The last one uh, would be some words. And the actions are quite extreme. They're extravagant. What John does is he uses normal verbs and he attaches to these verbs prefixes, which could be translated out or over. Everything is driven out or turned over. Okay, so I want to look at these with you in your Bible. Look at verse 15. And, and making a whip of cords, first action, he drove them all out of the temple. Here he drives out the oxen and the sheep and the pigeon sellers and their animals. These men had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles to help people buy animals that could be used for sacrifice. It, sure, it was a noble thing, right? You didn't want to bring an animal with you the whole way from the ends of the world back to Jerusalem. The problem is where they're doing it. These things should not have been for sale in the place where Gentile God-fears could worship God. And so Jesus fashions a whip to expel them. He drives out the oxen, sheep, and pigeon sellers and the animals. And then the second thing he does is he pours out the money changers' uh, coins. These money changers are a very infamous group. I, I wish, you know, I don't have a lot of time. I want, I want to be able to celebrate the table with you today. But uh, these money changers, what they would do is they would exchange your currency from whatever country you came from for the currency that would be accepted in the temple, the Tyrian. So they'd exchange money and they would charge commission, sometimes as much as 12% commission rate. Uh, for doing this. And so you can almost see the eyes of the money changers kind of twinkle with greed in the temple. I'm sure Jesus noticed that these money changers were open for business, but they weren't really concerned about genuine or true worship in the temple. And so Jesus responds. He pours out their money onto the floor. And then finally, he overturns tables and he tells the pigeon seller something. He gives them a message. Turns over the tables, and he tells the pigeon sellers this. He says, take these things away. Come out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You're using the word house two times. He's emphasizing something. You've taken God's house, and you've made it a house of merchandise or of greedy gain." see, Jesus took it personally when people did not come to the temple to worship God properly. Okay, so in this first act, you have a setting, and then you have Jesus' response, and then the close of this first act is found in verse 17 with the reflection of the disciples. Okay, so look down in your Bible at verse 17 again. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written Zeal for your house will consume me. I, I really love verse 17 because if it wouldn't be for this little verse, you would think that Jesus was acting all independently in the temple, that no one else was with him. But what you learn in verse 17 is that there were some silent, wide-eyed witnesses to everything that was going on. And the way the disciples respond is not necessarily active, right? It's they remember something, okay? So 
what happens here is the disciples, at least some of them, when they see Jesus' act in the temple, they think of a psalm. They think of Psalm 69, verse 9, which talks about how the Messiah would view the temple of God. The ancient psalmist, psalmist recorded these words, zeal for your house will consume me. Men and women, that's a powerful text of Scripture. The only way the disciples could explain the scene that they had just saw was to say that zeal devoured Jesus. It ate him up. Now, the word for zeal is a powerful New Testament word. It's a word used often for the zealots. You know who the zealots were, right? The zealots were a group of Jewish people who were radically committed to remove themselves of Roman rule. They would do whatever it took to remove Roman rulers so that the Messiah would be free to come. And so as the disciples are reflecting, they think of this psalm, they think of this word zeal. And what they, what they basically say here is that Jesus is overcome by something personified. He is overcome by zeal or passion for God's worship in God's temple. It overcomes him. It eats him up. Before we move on to Act 2, let me just ask you, do you have zeal for the worship of God? I think it's good for us to do some inspection as we consider the actions of Jesus Christ and the remembrance of the disciples. Do you have zeal for worshiping God. Think about the way you came to corporate worship today. Would someone say, if they watched you, that you were passionate about worshiping Jesus? If they saw the way that you prepared for worship on the Lord's Day, would they say that it's evident that you love, I mean, you love worshiping Jesus together with brothers and sisters? If they saw the way you listened to sermons, what would they say? If they saw the way you participated in congregational singing, what would be their response? If they could read your imaginations, the imaginations of your heart, when we are engaging in corporate worships, what would they know to be true about you? You see, zeal ate Jesus up. How about you? In the first act, the cleansing of the temple, we must learn from Jesus' passion for the way people would worship his Father. Okay? Now I want to move on to Act number 2, verses 18 through 22. Act number 2 is the replacing of the temple. So you've got the cleansing of the temple, then the replacing of the temple. Look with me at verse 18. So Jesus said to him, what sign, or I'm sorry, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures 
and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, this act comes in the same amount of verses, five verses, both acts. They're set up quite parallel. The first act started with a setting. Then you had Jesus' response, and then you had a final remembrance. This one ends in the same way as well. But this one starts with a dialogue in verses 18 through 20, 20, an exchange, verbal exchange between some of the Jewish people and Jesus. It says the Jews, the religious Jews, I think, or the leaders of the people, here, they're all about signs and miracles as a demonstration of someone's spiritual power. And so they ask Jesus, what sign authenticates or verifies that you have the authority to do what you just did? You caused a stampede, stampede stuff's on the ground, you had a, you had a whip. What sign authenticates your ministry? And Jesus' response is not what they're looking for. Jesus says, you could destroy this temple, and in three days, I would rebuild it. Now, that curious response from Jesus, for a sign, brought about the anger of these Jewish people. You could turn to a second passage at some point, Matthew 26, when they're getting ready to crucify Jesus. They said, he said he would destroy this temple and build it up in three days. This has not hit affection ears. What do you mean, three days? It has taken us all 46 years to build this place? And you think you could do it in three days? They did not appreciate the fact that he was belittling them and their temple. That's how they understood this. Now, why would they be so antagonistic against that answer, that sign? I think one of the things, of course, to think about again is to think back about the temple. The temple was a massive building by ancient standards. At its highest point, the temple stood over six stories high. At one point in its construction, there were over 18,000 men employed daily. I mean, you get the audacity of what Jesus is saying here. One point, 18,000 men working daily. Jesus says he can do it by himself in three days. Many of you perhaps have seen a picture of a, a person worshiping at the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall, or maybe crowds of people worshiping at the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall is one of the outer supports near the temple site. And if you've seen a picture, you can picture the people crowding around it to worship, and they look like little specks at the bottom of a towering wall. All the gates of the temple were trimmed with gold and silver. Do you know that there were over 162 columns? 162 columns in the, the court of the Gentiles alone. These columns stood on average of 27 feet high. It was said about these columns, there was a, an ancient writer who said that it would take three average-sized Jewish men to wrap their arms around the circumference of one of those columns, and then their finger, fingers would just barely touch. 162 massive columns. This is a massive structure. I mean, how dare Jesus say this? They were outraged. 
at this. But what's interesting to me is that John does not give us Jesus' response. Okay, instead, in verse 21, the response comes from someone else. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. It's not Jesus' response. Instead, this is the author, John himself. This is the narrator of the story. He gives his explanation in verse 21. And in this simple explanation, we uncover a very important principle in act number two. John's point here is that worship centers not on a building, but on a person. Now, there's actually an important literary thing going on in this point in John's gospel I want you to see. In the first 12 chapters of John's book, he lines up all kinds of comparisons between Jesus and some aspects of the Old Covenant. These are called John's replacements. There are nine of them. Nine replacements in the first 12 chapters. So for instance, in John chapter one, we learn that Jesus replaces something from the Old Covenant. Old Covenant grace is replaced by New Covenant grace. In John chapter four, the story of the Samaritan woman, perhaps you know the story, you find out that physical water is replaced by living water when you get to Jesus. You think of John chapter six, you learn that physical bread is replaced by the bread of life. In John chapter nine, we come across a man who is born blind and we see that spiritual blindness when touched by Jesus is replaced by the light of the world. In John chapter 11, death is replaced by, the death of Lazarus is replaced by Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, so in John's gospel, over and over again, there'll be some old covenant work or act of grace or some physical thing that's replaced by something better in Jesus. And that's what's happening in John chapter two here. The old temple is replaced by the new temple, the person of Jesus Christ. Worship is about him. He is the new center of worship. You see, we learn here in the replacing of the temple that genuine worship not only includes passion, but that it revolves around one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But just as the first act ended with the disciples remembering something, so does act two. This is the culmination of both acts, the disciples recalling something. Here, this remembrance in verse 22, though, does not come in this moment. It comes years later. I want you to look in your Bible at verse 22. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. Stop. Look up at verse 17. His disciples remembered. Both acts end with the disciples remembering something. Go back to verse 22 again. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, it was not until the resurrection 
that the disciples get it. It's during those moments, after the resurrection of Jesus, that they believe the scriptures. I think they believe what David said in Psalm 69.9. And they believe what Jesus said about, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. They believe that after Jesus rose again. You see, they have genuine faith that day and understand that our temple is a person. It's a person. So we must bring passion to worshiping God, but that passion revolves around one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we close, I ask you, how often do we come here week after week in tradition or discipline without considering why we are here. Several, several years ago, I came across a report of a tragic story, true story, that I found when I was living in Wisconsin. It was in the Milwaukee newspaper. Story was of a party where a group of friends had gathered to celebrate a little baby, the birth of a little baby. Friends and family came from all around to show appreciation. And as is common in parties, right, when you get together, they renewed acquaintances. And, but then after some period of time, they remembered the real reason they were there, the reason they come. And so they asked about the baby. Where's the baby? We'd like to see the baby. No one could find the baby until the mother finally remembered that she had set the baby, the, the baby asleep on the bed in the master bedroom. It's when they went rushing into the master bedroom and they found that the baby had suffocated under the weight of all of the coats of the visitors. Someone had taken all of the coats from the people who had come and they put them on the bed on top of the baby. Terrible story, sad story. For far too long in this story, they forgot why they were there. They did so many other things, yet forgot about the baby. Yet how many of us come week after week and forget why we're here? We find our seat. We sing our songs. We stand at the appropriate time. We sit at the appropriate time. We might even sing, but do we really care about worship? Are we zealous in our worship? And do we recognize that our worship does not revolve around a building? It revolves around a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world, lived a perfect life, died upon a cross, and then rose again so that we could be forgiven of our sins. If you're here today before we celebrate the Lord's table and you've never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, I would ask you, what would prevent you from doing that today? Jesus Christ is the only way to be delivered from your sins. Because of our sins, God's wrath is turned against us. We all deserve punishment and hellfire forever and ever 
but through Jesus you can be forgiven. As we partake in the Lord's table together today, I pray that for you it might be a special day where for the first time you say in your heart, I believe that Jesus Christ came into this world, died on the cross for my sins, and rose again. And I repent of my sin. I give that over to you, Lord, and ask you for forgiveness. And if you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, wake out of the ritual. Wake up out of the tradition. Remember why you're here. We're here to worship a person. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these moments. I thank you for this text. Thank you for Jesus' zeal. Zeal had eaten him up. Lord, I pray that we would not make excuses for our lack of attention or passion for the way worship is done. Lord, as well, I thank you for John's reflection It's just an amazing little verse, verse 21. But he spoke about the temple of his body, the new center for Christian worship. Lord, I pray that today, as we go to the table, we might rejoice in our great Savior, who died and rose again for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.